right. Matthew 21. I want to read the parable that ends up, the, or, or, I'm sorry, that completes the end of chapter 21. It starts in verse 33. I may make a few comments as I go. I'm going to try to read through as much as I can, then we'll come back. But I may make a couple of comments as we go. Um, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? They responded to Jesus. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, back to 33. Here another parable. So this is the second of three parables that Matthew has grouped together here. One we just picked up on Sunday about the parable of the two sons, and one said, yeah, I'll do that, but he doesn't do it. Another says he won't do it, but he turns around and does what his father asks. There's that parable. There's the one tonight, and then Sunday we'll pick up the third of these parables. And so Jesus says, here another parable. These three parables are interlocked by, by key words. You're going to find certain words that lock the parables together. And usually, usually, when parables are grouped like this, we should come away with a common meaning, common understanding. So if we read all three parables and get radically different meanings, we've, we've probably missed the point. Now, they're all distinct. They're all going to teach us different things, but in some way, they're meant to hold together. So 33, he says, here another parable. There was a master of a, of a house, an, an overseer, but probably a, this idea of, of a master, someone who controlled this area, controlled the house, who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Okay, has anyone this week been watching the Jeopardy show with the three champions? And so... Amanda and I desperately want to watch that, and we keep battling with our kids about whether we should be watching that or something else, and so I want so badly to go back and watch that. So, and, and these guys and their trivia ability, they hear something, and they make a connection so quickly to an answer or to another idea. Now, if you are a religious leader, 
in the time of Jesus' teaching, and you hear a parable that begins the way 33 begins, your mind explodes with Isaiah 5. I can't even tell you how fast someone hearing Jesus' parable who knew their Bible way better than we know ours, who knew, who knew these stories, it would have just erupted. Go back to Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is tying in to imagery here that would have been so prominent for, for the people. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at these Isaiah 5 verses just in a little bit of detail, kind of talk through them, and then we're going to do a, a quick little move through the Old Testament looking at vineyard passages because vineyard is not a throwaway term in Matthew 21. Like, we have to see what's happening because that's a key term. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at Isaiah 5 because Isaiah 5 is the connecting point. But this is a theme that goes all through Scripture. So with that said, let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. If your Bible has a little subheadings, it might say something about the vineyard of the Lord destroyed or the vineyard of the Lord Matthew 5, or not Matthew, I'm so sorry. I need to be more careful. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. He desired a certain fruit to come, and yet he got corrupt fruit, something that didn't match. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness but behold, an outcry. You see the connection, right, between Isaiah 5 and Matthew 20. It, it, it's so tight. And these religious leaders, they would have known this prophecy of Isaiah, this teaching of Isaiah, and now it's being used against them. And you just can't imagine the rage that would have come as they realized what Jesus was doing, turning this popular passage and saying, you know, that's you. That, that famous story where Nathan the prophet turns the parable on David and says, you're the man, that's what's happening here with these religious leaders in reference to Isaiah 5. So let's look at a couple other Old Testament passages about the vineyard. Let's start in 1 Kings chapter 21. So if you go back to the left a little bit in your Bible, First Kings chapter 21. Now actually, we're, we're not going to look at it. You can, you can find the very first vineyard passage in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, 
when Noah becomes a planter of a vineyard. Uh, as a, now, granted, his vineyard gets him in trouble because he gets drunk and then runs into all kinds of corrupt practice at that point. But you find that first planting of the vineyard there. And so you find in 1 Kings chapter 21 a story about Naboth's vineyard. Um, 1 Kings 21.1. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you, and here's a key word in 1 Kings 21.3, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat and would eat no food. Just total pout move <laughs> at that point. So, and the story gets worse because Jezebel begins to cause all this trouble and get the vineyard for him. And the whole story just spirals out of control at that point. But what I want you to see is the connection there between Naboth and in his maturity recognizing that this vineyard had been given to him as an inheritance to protect, that it was a gift from God, not something to be taken, not something to be treated lightly. It had been given to him by the Lord. Go to Proverbs chapter 24. We're going to look at two different Proverbs that, that reference vineyard very closely related to the theme that we're looking at tonight. So Proverbs chapter 24, verse 30, the last, uh, the last section of Proverbs 24. Here's what it says in Proverbs 24, 30. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come up on a man, or come up on you like a robber, and want like an armed man. What's the problem with the vineyard there? It's been neglected. It, it, it hasn't been watched over. There's laziness that's going on here, and because of that, the vineyard's corrupted. Look at Proverbs 31. This is a really fascinating connection here when you get the reference to the woman who fears the Lord. And, and it is a beautiful passage, remember, about a wife, but there are intentional connections in Proverbs 31 that says this is the way that God's people should live. So, yes, it does speak about a, a wonderful gift of a wife and a woman of the Lord, but it has broader wisdom connections in Proverbs 31. So here's what it says in Proverbs 31, starting in verse 16. What does this woman do? Proverbs 31, 16, this woman considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants, what? A vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the die staff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Okay, don't miss this, what's going on here. In Isaiah 5, where the vineyard is neglected and the people of God are not living as they ha should, when you got to the end of that Isaiah 5 passage in Isaiah 5, 7, 
What the Lord condemns them for is they failed to show justice. They failed to show righteousness to the people around them. Then you get this woman of wisdom in Proverbs 31. She plants a vineyard, and what happens as a result of her vineyard? In verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She uses the gift that God has given her. She works it, as opposed to Proverbs 24, where there's laziness. She produces fruit, and from that fruit, it's not for her to get wealthy. It's for her to be able to care for the people around her. God's purpose for his vineyard, for his people, is what? That we would produce fruit that is good for the people around us who need it. And that happens when we bring care to it. Uh, let's, look at, let's look at an important one. Jeremiah chapter 12. We'll look at one more. Uh, we can do two more and we'll get back. Jeremiah chapter 12. So you've got to turn over past Isaiah, where we were earlier. Get to Jeremiah 12. Let's look at, starting in verse 7. So Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord speaking back to Jeremiah, and he says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. And then the key phrase in verse 10. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Okay, when you see shepherds referenced in Jeremiah 12, there's some really strong connections to the book of Zechariah at this point. And what's happening here, the shepherds are supposed to be the leaders of the people. They are called to care for the people of God so that the people of God will be fruitful. What have they done? They've neglected the people, and because of the neglect, the people are not living the life they're supposed to live. They're, they're being corrupted. They're being destroyed. So God says, my shepherds who I've given to you have destroyed my vineyard. Remember who Jesus is speaking to in Matthew 21. It's the religious leaders. It's the people who are supposed to be shepherding them to be fruitful. Instead, they've corrupted the vineyard and they've led the people astray. All right, one more. Ezekiel 19. So you keep turning over to your right just a little bit. Get to Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is, how do you describe some of it's pretty trippy, <laughs> like when you're trying to read through Ezekiel. You get some imagery that is just all, all over the place, but Ezekiel is doing much of the same work that you find in Isaiah and Jeremiah about speaking against, but also promising that there's a new future to come. And so in Ezekiel uh, 19, verse 10, you get a couple of references to vineyard that fit in with what we talked about before, and I, I want to pick up on especially verse 10 okay so let's let's start with ezekiel 19 verse 10 your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water 
Its strong stems became ruler scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in a fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. You feel the same idea, right? How, how the people of God have been corrupted. They're no longer doing what they're supposed to do. Look back in verse 10 of that Ezekiel 19 passage. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Just curious, just curious does that ring a connection with any other place in the Old Testament? Do any alarms go off for you about another spot in the Old Testament about that verse? Psalms? Psalm 1. That's it. This verse explodes with Psalm 1, uh, which Psalm 1 is the passage about a tree planted by streams of water that gives its fruit in season. Psalm 1 begins a book actually 150 portions, five different books in there, about how we should worship, how should we live as the people of God. And it begins by talking about living a fruitful life, being planted by streams of water. And so all of this vineyard talk is wrapped around God has created his people to live fruitful lives. How do we do that? By being planted by streams of water, by being led by shepherds who care for the people, by giving of what we have, not being lazy in what God's called us to do. All right, that's a Big Old Testament theme overview. Go back to Matthew chapter 1 now, 21. So as you find your way back to Matthew chapter 21, let's read verse 33 again. Here's another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. (laughs) What does that mean? It means all that we just saw in the Old Testament. This is not a random statement. This is Old Testament theology at its most fun. Planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. You cannot mess this up. Just do what you've been called to do. Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So, The fruit has come, now they're going to provide it back to the master. Here's what you've received, here's what we've produced. And the tenants, verse 35, took his servants. It seems like in this parable and the next, when you see servants, we should think prophets. We should think those people who have come beforehand, those who have come to speak the word of God, to lead the people of God, There's a pretty strong connection there between servants and prophets. They they took the prophets, the servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Now you can actually find in, uh, we're not going to take the time to to look back at it right now, but you can find in 2 Chronicles a reference to a prophet named Zechariah, not the same Zechariah that wrote the Old Testament book, but, excuse me, a different one, who was specifically stoned because of doing the work of prophecy. Uh, Jeremiah 7 has a long section on how the servants of God are 
being seized and, and destroyed because of their work. And so you have language going on in Jeremiah 7, 2 Chronicles. When you see language about the prophets being killed, you can probably look back as quickly as John the Baptist on, on something like this. Uh, also, let me show you another fun thing here. Uh, I've told you before that Matthew is kind of obsessed with the number three. He likes the number five, but he also likes the, the number three. There's a, there's a way that it shows up here. Verse 35 the tenants took his servants, and what did they do? They did three things. They beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Now, does that mean there were only three servants? No, it's just Matthew's way of categorizing this, of saying that the servants were opposed. Then look what happens in, in verse 36. So he sent other servants. Beginning of 35, there's a group of servants. Beginning of 36, there's a group of servants, so he sent other servants more than the first. They did the same to them. Finally, verse 37, he sent his son. How many groups of people did he send? He sent three. <laughs> the first group of servants, the second group of servants, and his son. How many things happened to them? Three different things in Matthew 35, or verse 35. So uh, if you're a little bit OCD, Matthew is your man. Like, he's your gospel. So I think that's why I'm really drawn to him. Like, we've talked before. We've kidded about the tax collector accountant thing. But there's something going on there, how Matthew likes everything to fit in these groupings. I always love the number three. It's just such a good theology number. And so high school basketball, we didn't have um, single-digit numbers because we were a poor Class B school. So you just kind of got whatever jerseys they they gave you, and somebody else had 12, so I picked 21 because 2 plus 1 equals 3. So that's the closest I could get. That was always my number. Uh, baseball, they let us have number 3, so I always felt better about having number 3. But you can tell I suffer from overthinking things, uh, majorly. What I'm really saying is pray for my wife. <laughs> so, total head case. Um, okay, verse 36 he sent another group of servants, more than the first. They did the same to them. Oh, yeah, verse 37 is where we're trying to get. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, surely they will respect my son. Uh, a nice verse connection here is with uh, Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. At many times and in various ways, God spoke to his people through the prophets, plural, but in these last days, he has sent his son. And then it begins to give this incredible description of the son there at the beginning of Hebrews 1. So you've got a little bit of Hebrews 1 going on here in this idea of, of he, in verse 37, surely they're going to respect my son. Verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Remember how Naboth referred to his vineyard. It was an inheritance. It was something to be received. Let's come and let's receive, let's, let's take his inheritance from him. So, verse 39, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Here's the interesting thing about the inheritance. What was supposed to be true of the people of God who received the Messiah? What were they supposed to become? What were they supposed to receive? What? Yeah, that we receive the Holy Spirit. Sorry, pick up on my inheritance word. Um, what do we become in Christ? We become heirs. Yeah. So what was supposed to be given when you receive the Son, they try to take for themselves by destroying the Son. You see the contrast here. 
God all along wanted to make us heirs, say, receive this. This is what I prepared for you. The problem here is they say, no, we don't want it that way. We don't want it to come through the Son. We will take it ourselves by force. And so, they, in 39, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the religious leaders, who are half paying attention, I guess, at this point, they said in verse 41, well, surely he will put those wretches to a miserable death, and he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Well, funny enough, they've answered exactly right. <laughs> they just don't know that they've condemned themselves in, in the process. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to get them to. Then in 42, Jesus does one of his statements where he says, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, if you have a Bible that gives you those little uh, intertextual marks, the reference marks, it should point you back to Psalm 119. Uh, not Psalm 119. Psalm 118. Uh, the interesting thing is Jesus has just used Psalm 118 earlier in Matthew 21. If you back up to um, the beginning of Matthew 21, down in verse 9, so Matthew 21, down in verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So we've already picked up on this kind of a language, but you get over to verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This language will be used other places in the New, in the New Testament. One thing to, to note here that's really interesting is we receive the New Testament 99.9% .9 in the Greek language. Uh, but in Aramaic, which would have kind of been the day-to-day -day language of Jesus and a lot of us followers, there's a word play on the word sun and the word stone where those words would have sounded almost exactly the same. And so when you get a phrase like the stone that the builders rejected, there's a word play there. It's the sun that the builders rejected. The stone who has come, the stone that would be laid for the people, for the foundation of God's people, is the son of God. Stone and sun are tied together in this language as the people would have heard it. And so there's that word play going on there. Verse 43 Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Uh, what's our time? Ten minutes? Um, there is all kinds of theology packed into 43. So what we're going to do is we're going to study the rest of these verses, and then we're going to come back and give our time to 43, and I'll kind of tell you what's involved in 43. So let's skip ahead to 44. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Uh, this verse in 44 seems, there's, there's a lot of controversy about this verse, but it seems to tie back to imagery in the book of Daniel, 
where you get a, a statue that is built up that represents all the kingdoms that will come, and then the stone breaks off and begins to roll down and, and crushes, that seems to be the background imagery that's going on here, that when the stone comes, when the sun comes, when God's plan comes to fulfillment, those that stand opposed will be, will be crushed, will be overcome, and in its place will grow up the stone that will be God's kingdom forever, that, that will reign forever and ever. Verse 45, when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. At which point you're tempted to say something sarcastic because it's kind of like, well, no kidding. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what it's about. But, but, but again, we, we have to be careful about sarcasm here because probably rage is, is a little bit more. They, they start to understand this is, things are boiling and, and this is going to lead to their response to Jesus. 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So again, they're, they're afraid of the crowds and how the crowd is, is going to respond here. Uh, to make sure we're in a good place before we back up and look at 43, just remember from this parable uh, what's going on here. How God has prepared his people, put his people in place to be a vineyard. He's called us to be fruitful, not to be greedy, not to be selfish, not to take it, but he said, I've, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. I've given you everything you need to produce fruit. Do that so that with that fruit you're able to minister to and care for the people around you. Uh, there's a great connection in John 15. How do we produce fruit? What does Jesus say in John 15? Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. How do we produce fruit? By abiding in Christ, by walking by the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says. So one of the things we have to ask is, are we doing that as God's people? Are we, as his people, as his vineyard, being fruitful? Are we receiving his word, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, so we lead fruitful lives that minister to others? What got the people in trouble in Isaiah 5? They didn't show justice to the needy, and they didn't produce works of righteousness that displayed the glory of God. They've been called to justice, and they've been called to righteousness, which are big Matthew themes. So we want to make sure that we're doing that. Now let's look at verse 43 to see what's going on here in the last couple of minutes. Matthew 43, or uh, 21, 43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's English Standard Version. Uh, give me a couple of other versions other than English Standard on verse 43. Anybody brave enough to say they're reading King James or anybody? Uh, okay, so King James does nation. English Standard does people. Uh, it's doing people, okay. Anybody have NIV? What's NIV doing? People, okay. So King James is standing alone on nations here. Uh, it's okay. Really? Look at that. Hardcore Southern Baptists win nations on that. So, uh, okay, all right. So we got all these different things going on here. All right, people and nation. Um, this is that word, that ethne word. Sometimes it's translated as Gentiles. Sometimes it's translated in reference to a nation. Uh, 
where we have to be careful on the word nation is immediately we go geopolitical when, when we hear nation. Uh, famously, people group or, you know, peoples has been kind of more, uh, more popularized with that. Now, you see where the controversy is right here. You see where the challenge here. When you read 43 and it says the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, from you as the religious leaders, from you as those who have claimed to be the people of God, and will be given to a people or a nation producing its fruit, you start to get into thoughts about replacement theology. Is this taking away from the Jews and giving to the Gentiles? Is this taking what's happening to Israel here in reference to the Gentiles? This type of wording here, though, seems very clearly to be that the distinction is not Jews and Gentiles in this case, though that does matter. What matters here is it's taken away from you, those who claim to be the people of God but aren't producing the fruit, and is going to be given to a people who produce the fruit who identify with Christ. So it's not just Gentiles. It's not like it's taken away from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. It's not even that type of language. It's taken away from you who claim to be the people of God but produce no fruit and given to those who produce fruit because they're found in the Son. Their lives are built on, on Christ. The neat connection here is that wording leads us to the end of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 28. If you'll turn over to Matthew 28, we're going to wrap up with this. What is this idea of the people who will receive this message, the people that it will be given to that will produce its fruits? Well, when you see that word people or nations in, uh, in Matthew, a lot of it drives toward Matthew 28, down around, let's start in verse 18. This is the famous Great Commission uh, passage there. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Oh, why did ESV do that? <laughs> that makes, it obscures the connection there by changing from people to nations. But we digress. We digress. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then get verse 20. This is that fruit connection teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What is observing all that I commanded you? It's being fruitful. This ties together everything that the people have been prepared for. They're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's where their life is based on. That's where their identity is found. And what do they do? They observe. They live out what they've been commanded to do. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's where all this is going. This is what we've been called to do. So what have we been called to do? To base our lives on the hope that we have through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to live fruitful lives. When we do what we've been commanded to do, and we're able to share that with all nations, with all peoples, that everyone would be drawn to him. All right, let's pray together and wrap up. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. God, thank you for the way that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, your word is so unified. We know there's so many parts that we have to come humbly before and just admit that they're hard to understand and we want to be so careful from a human perspective. But God, we receive your word given to us by the Spirit and we thank you for the way that it presents this unified 
message of you've created a world, you've placed your people there in your creation to live fruitful lives of worship. And God, we know sin gets in the way of that. Selfishness gets in the way of that. Ungodly leadership gets in the way of that. But God, you call us to your son. And through the son, we are able to have forgiveness and life. And God, we want to do all that he's commanded us to do. We want to live fruitful lives as we abide in Christ and walk by your spirit. God, let us be a fruitful church. Not a selfish church, but a generous giving church where we show your glory to the world around us. And God, I pray that many people would be, be, would be baptized as a result of your gospel going out to the nations. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for being here. God bless you. Have a great night. Let me or Carl know if you want to help out on Wednesday nights with the uh, meal plans. So, good night.